Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and this is the audio version of the Ask Me Anything episode. So when I say audio version, that implies that there's some different version. There is. There's actually a video version of this podcast. It's on our YouTube channel, and I put it up as a YouTube playlist. So you can either just play all of the videos back to back and have a video podcast experience, or you can select individual questions that I answer. If you prefer simply to consume your podcasts via audio, then everything I put out is also going to have an audio component as well. But either way, I do encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. All of the podcasts and the interviews are going to go up audio only as well. But I am going to do video versions of some of them. So for some interviews, depending on the guest's preferences, I might also put out a video version. I'm also thinking of using the podcast. I believe the technical term is vlog, video blog, to do short editorial comments on some of the videos. So please do subscribe to the um, YouTube channel. The link to that is on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Again, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, along with our social media and how to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and so on. So please do check that out. Please do follow and subscribe across all of them. But my particular plug for today is to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, This introduction is slightly different to the introduction that I put out on the video one but then all of the questions are the same. So it's just the audio version of the videos that I recorded. So as evidenced by the title, today is an Ask Me Anything episode. I'm taking audience questions. I got a really great response from this. Some of them came from Reddit and some of them came from our Facebook page. And again, if you want to follow us on Facebook, please do so. Links on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So I don't have a guest this time. I'm just taking a crack at some audience questions. And if people like this, I can do it more often. I'm still sort of undecided on if maybe every 10 episodes or so I do an Ask Me Anything. Or maybe I just, if I have additional comments or things I want to respond to, I just do so using the YouTube channel. So I'm undecided on that. Either way, though, that's my introduction. And if you want to check out a video of these, you can check out the YouTube channel. Or if you'd rather not look at me and, hey, I don't blame you, then, um, you know, more than welcome to just keep on subscribing and listening via audio. So with that said, it's my pleasure to present... (laughs) Well, in this case, myself. But either way, um, this is the Political Philosophy Podcast. Welcome to the Ask Me Anything episode. number one and this comes from reddit and this is an amazing question to start with for a show on political philosophy what is the good we are pursuing in moral philosophy so this is just like what is your starting point um here's my crack at this i think the good we are pursuing is the sum total of desirable conscious experiences minus the sum total of undesirable conscious experiences. Let me translate that. So, basically, I'm defending a mature consequentialism. I think the good is good conscious experiences, and the bad is suffering, essentially. So, I'm going to offer you two arguments or intuitions behind this idea. One epistemic, one moral. So, epistemic is just like, how do we know things? What is it to know? And I think a lot of people want to say there are no coherent epistemic foundations of moral theories. Check out my discussion in the first episode with Cecile Farb, vis-a-vis that point. 
I disagree. I think there are. And not only that, I think the epistemic foundations of morality are actually some of the most concrete epic fa- epistemic foundations that we have for any set of theories or facts out there. Here's my starting point, is the fact of consciousness. We know consciousness exists because we experience it. The fact that you are thinking about whether you have consciousness means you have consciousness. This is Descartes. I, I think, therefore, I am. I think that's a really solid epistemic foundation. From that, all you really need to grant me to get the moral machinery of consequentialism up and running is that there are different experiences within consciousness. You know, some of these we might describe as pleasurable or euphoric or meaningful. Some we might describe as unpleasant or painful. But... You don't even need to apply labels to it. All you need to grant me is that there are different experiences within consciousness. Now, uh, a lot of people at this point will come along and think they're frightfully clever by asking, oh, but, but what makes one of those experiences more valuable than another? Well, nothing. You're asking for something which doesn't exist, which is an independent source of value. Or, I'll be a bit more cautious, there's, there's no epistemic foundation as far as I can see for an alternative source of value, right? And then people will say, oh, but, but, you know, the words that you're using to describe it, like desirable and undesirable, and they'll raise a host of methodological issues there. What do you mean by that? What makes it desirable? Blah, 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 blah. And I think what you're doing there is you're confusing methodological problems with ontological objections. So the fact that you can say that there are issues and problems with how we use language to describe different conscious experiences doesn't mean that there's not different conscious experiences. So by way of analogy, if I were to say about ten to 13,000 people get murdered in the US each year, you could immediately start being clever and go, oh, well, what do you mean by murder? Hang on. Do you mean manslaughter? What about when the police kill someone unjustifiably? What about this and that and the other? And these are all valid and important questions, right? But that, that's a methodological issue in terms of how we categorise and describe a certain phenomenon. And those methodological issues might bleed into epistemology. It might be because we can't describe things clearly. We can know them less clearly. But at the end of the day, there still is living people and dead people, and there's a difference between those two. Likewise, we have sensations that we think of as suffering and other sensations, and there is, a, there is an ontological difference between those things. Now, now, what ultimately makes that distinction morally salient? Nothing except for the nature of the experiences themselves. Now, as soon as you apply language to that, you get the same problem you do in defining murder. What does it mean by suffering? What do you mean by pleasure? What do you mean by pleasures? Well, th- this is, this is a, 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 a methodological issue to do with how we use language. And if you want to be a pure nominalist and say all words must have exact, precise meanings, then, yeah, you are going to run into issues here, but you're going to run into issues with everything, because words do not carry exact nominalistic meanings. We are not in a platonic universe of forms. The way we use language is much more open and fluid and flowing in a sort of, in a Wittgensteinian family resemblances sort of sense. So that's my epistemic foundation for morality. What is the good then, if I'm saying the good is conscious experiences? Well, I think we actually really underrate the first half of the utilitarian equation, which is the absence of suffering. So, uh, a few months back, um, I had a hole in one of my teeth, and I let it go neglected, and it got all the way down to the nerve, and I got a particle stuck in there, and the undesirableness of that experience is, is hard to convey. It was, I literally couldn't form sentences, I certainly couldn't sleep or anything like that. It was, imagine someone putting a power tool into your tooth. Um, And it's much, much worse than other... Like, it's not just worse than, like, getting punched in the face. It's, like, category different worse. It's, like, orders of magnitude worse than that. And so if you were to ask me, would I rather have invasive dental surgery 
without anaesthetic or some sum of positive goods, those group of positive goods would have to be really high. I wouldn't do it for $100. I wouldn't do it for $1,000. And I think anyone who would do it for $1,000 would either, one, not understand what they're letting themselves in for, or be coming from a place of real desperation. So say a homeless person did it for $1,000. Well, then that would be because that, that $1,000 would feed them. But that's trading off one form of suffering against another. I'm talking about how much good outweighs even just physical suffering, never mind mental suffering. And, and my view is it's really quite high. And so when we think about morals, when we think about what we're trying to achieve, people sort of like, because it's simple to conceptualise and you can't really show off your intellect analysing it as much, I think really neglect the, 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 the idea of just getting away from suffering as a primary goal. The next thing I think is we need to acknowledge on the good side you're faced with a huge open-ended pluralist spectrum. That there's a whole load of goods we could be desiring and they'll be different from person to person and they probably don't reduce down to a single metric. Now again that is just an epistemic but indeed ontological fact about the world that people desire different things, and there's a plurality of positive conscious experiences, um, you know, meaningfulness versus um, pleasure or knowledge or something like that. That's just a fact about the world that any serious moral theory will have to contend with. It's not a weakness of this specific account. Now, here's my next answer is what's the sort of moral intuition behind this? And I'm going to start with actually a, a religious metaphor here. That was a whole load of philosophy. What, what does this look like? What does it feel like? And what it feels like is I want you to think of the person or persons you love most in the world. It could be your wife, husband, significant other, parents, your children. And ask yourself, what would you really want for them? And I think you'd get something like I described from my philosophy. I think before anything else, you would not want them to suffer, right? If you have children, what wouldn't you do to prevent someone, to take the example I just gave, drilling into their teeth with that anesthetic? What wouldn't you give for that? And also, if someone said, hey, you know, let me drill into your child's teeth, but I'll give you an extra 100 bucks to get them Christmas presents, you would not take that deal. And I think that just, again, reinforces my first point, which is the primacy of avoiding suffering. Then in terms of the positive, what do you want for them? Well, I think if you reflect on it, you'd actually want what they want. So if you said, well, I'd want my wife to have a career as a virtuoso violinist, you'd only really be saying that, I think, if that's what she, what she wanted anyway. So it more maps to... I would want that person to be able to autonomously pursue their own good as defined by their own needs. Um, and then the move I would make to a full system of morality is just imagine if you could feel that sense of love for every single person in a society. Now, as a psychological fact, I don't think we can. I think love is such an intense and such a draining emotion. We can probably only feel really true love for a handful of people at best. But what would we want for all of society if we loved all of society? And notice again, this is quite a religious move. I'm talking about universal love. This is an idea that, that finds its home in the, the religious teachings and you know, honestly crackpots throughout the ages, but I think it's a valuable idea. So what would we want for the whole of society? Well, we'd want prohibitions that stop the worst forms of suffering. We'd want a society that exists without torture, that exists without needless violence, that exists with antibiotics and modern medicine. And then beyond that, on the positive side, because of the innate pluralism of what people desire, we'd want a society that allows them to grow and develop and pursue their own good in their own way. And so I think actually properly considered, this idea of universal love actually lands you in a moral universe that looks quite a lot like um, the moral universe of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Right? Now, from there, you can then start to say, well, given that starting point, what sorts of laws and um, 
policies and so on should we have? That's a separate question. But that's my starting point. At an epistemic level, we can say that we know things about morality because we know things about conscious experience and that we, we know that we have it and we have different types of conscious experience. However, imperfect our understanding of it is and the language we use to describe it is. And then on the moral side, when you think about the people you really love, you don't know everything, but you have a starting point of what is desirable for them. And so the phrase utilitarianism, as we covered on the episode by that name with Roger Crisp, he suggests is actually the wrong name. The name Henry Sidgwick gave to it of universal benevolence is actually a much better idea. Next question. Do I think that people who post racist things on their social media should be subject to being outed to their employers or doxxed or publicly shamed? Yes. Um, at least in some circumstances, I think this is a justifiable tactic. That might seem a bit aggressive, but I think you have to take that in the context of how pervasive and how destructive racism is as a social force in America. So certainly if someone's powerful or a public figure or a CEO or a celebrity or something like that, and they're saying overtly bigoted things, then publicly shaming them for that is, I would argue, actually important and necessary. And then even for just regular people, I think there's circumstances where this sort of online shaming can do some good. So there's recently been the case, which has just blown up on black Twitter, of this woman um, who called the police on some black people who were barbecuing in a public park and she felt they didn't have the permission to be there. I, I don't know who was technically right or wrong, but the bottom line is it's just a jerk move to call the police on someone for that sort of a dispute. And then when you add the racial element to it, it's even more of a jerk move. And she's just been mercilessly and really quite brilliantly parodied and trolled on the internet. And I, I just can't bring it in myself to feel bad for her. I think she is a victim of nothing other than her own stupidity and maybe even her own bigotry. So as a moral consequentialist, I always assess the morality of an action by the ultimate harm done and the ultimate good done. So, in this case, yeah, there may well be some harm done to her. I'm sure she's feeling negatively about this. But, because of the, the sort of publicity this has received, if this serves as sort of a warning, as it were, and it means that, you know, in future, maybe white people just think twice before calling the police in similar circumstances, I could well see that this one incident could lead to hundreds of less such incidents in the future, in which case, as a utilitarian, I really have to say that the net gain of this is good. And similarly, um, I think it would be okay to fire someone for posting overtly bigoted things online. If someone gets on their computer and is dumb enough to post under their own name, and by the way, it's super easy to post anonymously online, but if you're dumb enough to do it under your own name, where your friends and your family can see it and be like, I don't like N-words, then if your employer pulls you in and say, okay, okay, Mr. Jones, I, I see you've been saying that you don't like people of other races and a requirement of this job is that you have to work with people of other races, so I guess you won't be able to work here anymore. In that case, again, you are a victim of nothing other than your own stupidity. And people who that happens to are not an appropriate object of our liberal sympathy. They are not free speech martyrs. They are morons. I have a few reservations about this. So I think publishing people's home addresses, that sort of carries with it the implicit threat of violence. Although, even in some cases, that can be funny and appropriate. So there was this lawyer in New York who went off on a huge racist rant and a, a mariachi band and party showed up outside his house. Well, that's adorable and, and that's all in good fun. 
With that said, I, I would be a little bit careful about stuff that carries with it an implicit personal threat. I also wouldn't want to see this tactic used on people who, say, are merely politically conservative. I think it has to be genuine bigotry before we get this far. And as a final point, while this is one tactic that we can use, I don't think, I think we should be very clear that this is a tactic that's not going to be sufficient to combat racism in this country. It, it, I think we're all walking around with the idea in our heads that people who hold overtly bigoted views, like I, I'm against interracial marriage, I, I wouldn't want to um, live in a neighbourhood with black people or have my children go to school with them. I think we're walking around with the idea that people who hold those views are like a fraction of a percent. They're not. Those views, if you do a public poll, will poll anywhere between 10 and 20%, depending on the question and how you ask it. There's, there's not enough Twitter mobs in the world to deal with that. So, yes, this is one tactic, but ultimately I think we need to really recommit in a serious and sustained way to societal integration. We're as informally segregated now as we were 20 years ago. And I think all the evidence in the world shows that being separate from each other is what is one of the main forces breeding misunderstanding and hatred. I also think we should seriously consider something along the lines of reparations. I don't know exactly how that would work, and I think there's sensible and not sensible answers to that question, but I think it's at least a discussion that we should be having. And I'm not going to be able to cover either of those issues here, they're both big issues, but I am actively looking to get uh, people on the podcast to cover both of them. But in short, yeah, I think when you, you take into account how bad racism is and how damaging it is, it's arguably the most damaging force in American social and political life, then some of the tactics we've been seeing online to combat it I view as appropriate and even ethical. Next question. Is war ever justified? Yeah, I think in some circumstances. Now, those circumstances are an overwhelming minority of historical circumstances. I think most wars historically have not been justified, either at the time or in retrospect. But, yeah, I mean, I outlined a morally consequentialist view of the world earlier, and I think congruent with that view, you have to be able to say there are some outcomes that are so bad that violence might be necessary to prevent them. And all I'm saying there is a greater amount of violence is less desirable than a smaller amount of violence. So to take an example from the modern era, if it is the case, and I don't know, I'm not an expert on this, but if it is the case that a small intervention could have prevented the genocide in Rwanda, then, yeah, if you could have intervened with a small force, maybe lost a few hundred lives, and that would have saved a few hundred thousand lives, then I'd, I'd really be hard-pressed to say that that was immoral. I'd really be hard-pressed. And so I think the attraction of something like pacifism is it's desirable because so many wars are not ethical and are not, not even well thought through for selfish reasons. That the, the, the history of the, the modern American empire, as far as I can tell, has been one of farce and blundering and not even, not even achieving what it aimed to set out, much less doing anything ethical. So I think pacifism is attractive because so many wars have been so badly conducted, both ethically and practically. With that being said, I think there's actually something profoundly immoral about pacifism. You're saying that you would tolerate any amount of violence, any amount of oppression. I, 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 don't, I don't see that. I, I think there has to be some circumstances where there is a lesser evil. Now, with that said... I think that the ethical challenge of war is that you're, you're making these decisions under such huge amounts of uncertainty. So I talked about this in my interview with Will McCaskill a bit, but you could make an argument to the effect that given nuclear war is such a bad outcome, 
anything that moves the dial of increasing the probability of that, that, that overwhelms any other decision-making factor. So you could argue that any war in the modern age, necessarily because it's destabilising, increases the percentage chance of a nuclear exchange. Therefore, that consideration overwhelms everything else and any war is immoral. I think that argument doesn't succeed for a few reasons. There may be isolated local cases, and I think Rwanda's a good example of this, where a small intervention might actually be stabilising rather than destabilising. So, in which case, the use of force would again become permissible. I think, though, the ultimate question is is that we get caught between two normative impulses here, both of which are correct. One is that we should want societies like North Korea or Saudi Arabia, we should want them to, to abandon those regimes. And then the other is just the reality that um, regime change by force almost never works. And so I think the final word on this, as with so many things, is an essay written by John Stuart Mill 150 years ago, where he says the only morally acceptable position to take on foreign intervention is to be forward in theory and against it in practice. If we could wave a magic wand and turn North Korea into a flourishing Jeffersonian democracy, we would be monsters not to do it. And I think that's something the left got wrong in its critique of, say, the Iraq war. The stated goals of the Iraq war, if you ignore all of the lies and misinformation about weapons of mass destruction, were very admirable. Saddam Hussein was a psychopath. Saddam Hussein's sons were psychopaths. Hundreds of thousands of people died in that regime because of that regime, not because of any interventional sanctions by the West, although they also died because of that. Yes, if we had gone in and turned it into a flourishing democracy, we would have been monsters not to do it. With that said, so I don't think there's any moral relativism here. I don't think there's any saying we're just as bad as Saddam. We're not. With that said, I think you have a moral responsibility to look at what are your chances of success. And historically, your chances of success are very, very small maybe even like single digits small. Most regimes that are destroyed by force, that are authoritarian, do not become flourishing democracies. So I think if you're proposing to go in with force, the onus is on you to say why it will be different this time. Why this time will be different than any of the other countless interventions we've done which have not led to a flourishing democracy. And I don't, that burden wasn't met in Iraq, which was why I was against it at the time. I marched against it, I protested against it. And history has vindicate, vindicated those of us who took that position. So, in conclusion, war sometimes is the answer. Practically, it's very rarely the answer. And even if there are cases where, in theory, the moral impetus would be on us to change a regime, in practice, it almost never works, and we need to take the practice into account too. So my view of war is very much on the side of the left. Where I differ from the left is I do think, I'm not a pacifist, and I do think if we could change a lot of these regimes, we should, but no one has really put forward anything that seems remotely workable for how we could. So that's my one-on-one answer on war. Next question. Aristotle said something to the effect of, if we just had enough friendship, there'd be no need for politics. Do I agree? So there's two ways I can answer that question. One, is that the correct interpretation of Aristotle? And two, do I just agree with the statement on face value? And I'm just going to answer the second for now. Do I agree with the statement? Um, no, I don't. And I think what's, what's wrong with that statement, and I think it's quite a common feeling, you don't need to go back to Aristotle, but there's this idea of politics and the political as a necessary evil. And actually, I'd argue the, pol the, the political is both inescapable and desirable. So I think when people say politics, they tend to mean one specific arena of politics, which is the operation of state power. 
it's possible to imagine a world without that. Although I think even there you're being really idealistic. And I think the effects of dismantling state power would likely be negative. I think the alternatives to state power in the world as we know it today are increased corporate power in first world countries and non-functioning societies, something like Somalia in the developed developing world. And I actually think the nation state, for all its flaws, is more desirable than either of those two extremes. But there's actually a deeper point here, which is the conception of the political that the question implies is very, very narrow. So I see the political as something much broader than that. And indeed, how we use the word politics in contemporary English is much broader than that. It applies to a much broader range of phenomenon. And a point I keep coming back to is that if we use language in a strict nominalist way, we're going to get tripped up. So there is not one thing which is politics. There's not a precise definition of what the political is. The political is many things. It, it's a cluster, it's a profile of a number of recurring themes. So to cash that out a little, this is the definition offered of the political in Michael Frieden's The Political Theory of Political Thinking. And I interview Frieden on the show if you want more in detail of this. But he provides the policy, the following definition of political, and I'll just read you this one paragraph. I submit that we tend to allocate the term politics or political to the following features of social conduct. A. Appropriating the locus of ultimate decision-making. B. Distributing material or symbolic goods. C. Mobilising or withdrawing public support. D. Organising the social complexities through which stability or conflict and disruption are manufactured. E. Policy-making and option-selecting for collectives. F. Wielding power. So that's quite a lot there, and I'm not going to go through that whole definition. But the point is that by that definition of politics, that there is a political aspect to every conversation we have with another person. So to just take a couple of these, policy-making and option selection. The political is, in part, one of the dimensions of the political is any act of prioritization or goal-setting within a collective is political, right? So yes, that applies to, like, approving a state budget, but it also applies to um, a family. So if you consider in any friendship, any family, they're going to be decisions. They're going to be acts of prioritization. Um, do we have dinner now or do we have dinner at 9 p.m.? Do we have dinner together or do we have it separately? All of those are just acts of goal setting and prioritization. So within any social group, there's going to be that goal setting. And it's necessary that there is. Also, the operation of power. Power can be unpleasant in terms of threats or menace, but it can also be something that's, that's very positive and very desirable. If you, you know, within a family, let's just take the when do we have dinner example, you know, you might say, hey, you know, I just want to eat by myself. But then someone else might want to say, well, listen, I just think it will be more pleasant if we all eat together. And even if it's a bit awkward at first, I would just, I really want to hear how your day's been. I really just want to know what's going on in your life. And I'd love it if I could just listen to you for, you know, 20 minutes of the day instead of, you know, and you can play your video games or whatever afterwards. And you hear that and you go, you know, you know what, you're right. I, I want you to know how my day's been and I want you to, I want to know how your day's been. And you're persuaded but persuasion is an act of power. To persuade someone is to exert power over them. Which brings me to my next point, which is the desirability of politics. So firstly, it's really po impossible to get away from a society in which there's an operation of power. Remembering that power isn't just decision-making. It's also agenda-setting and persuasion. So there's always going to be power. Even in the Aristotelian sense of friendship, if you are deciding which bar you go to drink with with your friends, by the way, Aristotle was okay with drinking, providing it was in moderation. Well, in deciding that, there's an act of agenda setting. There might be the other aspects that we took here, mobilizing or withholding of support. 
distributing material symbolic goods who picks up the check, but there'll certainly be an aspect of power. I'll persuade you that this bar is actually the better one, right? You'll, you'll withhold or give me your support for that. So the politics is always with us. And in order to imagine a society without politics, you'd have to imagine a society of Robinson Crusoe's. You'd have to imagine a society of people who are completely isolated, physically isolated from their fellow human beings. And that brings me to my second point, which it just isn't desirable that we be free from politics. Politics is a good thing. It can be used negatively. But the idea that we can set agendas, that we can set visions for the future, that we can persuade others, all of these can be harmful, but they can also be very positive. And a society of Robinson Crusoe's would not be desirable. Which, as a final point, isn't it interesting how central the idea of Robinson Crusoe as a metaphor has been to economic thought, to neoliberal thought, and to libertarian thought. This fantastical idea of a completely isolated man, which of course is mirrored in the strict isolation of human beings, the atomized view of society, the impoverished, emaciated view of human nature as merely pursuing rational self-interest, stripped of any sociability or outgoingness that we find in someone like Rose Nozak. Or the abstract individualism that we find in someone like Rawls. There's a much better tradition within liberalism. Whereas, in fact, there's actually a much deeper and a much better tradition within liberalism of something like J.S. Mill or Hobson or Hobhouse, where we're interested in promoting the individual, promoting individual development and autonomous growth and flourishing from real individuals within the context of these individuals existing in social frameworks, in relationships, in families and in marriages, and in a certain state of society and in a certain state of social development. And that leads to a much better and a much more inspiring political theory, a much richer one and a much more applicable one, I would argue, is a theory that starts with the reality of politics rather than deluding ourselves that it's possible to, to have a society without politics, as Rawls does in political liberalism, where he imagines that we can fully separate political values from social ones. And if you want to see a full critique of that, check out Wittgenstein versus Rawls on this podcast. But that's my answer. No, we can't live without politics. It's inescapable. And even if it were, it's not desirable. And finally, we do much better political theory and political thinking when we take those realities into account. Okay, next question. And I, I realise my hair seems to get crazier with each one of these. Whatever, you didn't, you didn't join us to listen to my hair. Listen about my hair? Well, maybe you did. But, next question. How do I think technology is going to change politics? Well, that's a huge question. But specifically, how might it change voting systems? So could we vote online? Could there be a app on our phones where we approved legislation or something like this. Yes, in theory, and there's been all sorts of fascinating proposals put forward. Actually, my answer to this question is I think the more interesting question is the negative. We've been talking about this for a long time now. When I first started my politics degree 12, 13 years ago, we were talking about internet democracy and so on. We've had the technology the question is, why haven't voting systems changed? I mean, at all, right? And there's a lot of these interesting negative questions in politics. So to take the authoritarian side, um, it seemed common sense some time ago that a lot of new technologies to do with genetic engineering, to do with drug use, medication, mind control that all of these things would start to be employed by authoritarian regimes in order to control their populace. So in Brave New World, that's very much a prediction of that, right? And Brave New World was self-consciously set against 1984, which is a sort of much more traditional totalitarian state. Except it didn't happen. Although authoritarian regimes completely lack morals, and they 
seemingly are willing to do whatever it takes to stay in power, that was a road that, as far as I know, none of them ever went down. And it's an interesting question as to why not. So, on the democratic side, we have all this new technology. People have been talking about using it to improve democracy for a long time now. And we simply haven't. We're voting the same way we did 100 years ago. So, why not? I have two theories for this. The first is that the people who decide on changing the rules are the same people who are the ultimate beneficiary of those rules. So, it is always going to be a bit of a stretch for people who are in power because of a specific set of rules to change those rules, even when they might be ideologically sold on doing so. So, I'll give one example from my own career in politics is about five years back I was involved in an effort to change New York's campaign finance law. As you probably know, American politics has a huge amount of money in it, and that's very corrupting and distorting of the democratic process. And we were advocating for something called um, public financing, which essentially is a way of getting funds to candidates who don't have big money backers, and kind of just evening the playing field a little bit with respect to candidates who do. Now, all of the key players involved in this, it's a blue state, the governor, the key players in the state senate, certainly in the state assembly, all said they were for this. And they gave quite compelling reasons, and they gave reasons in terms of their own experience of politics. A lot of them said, listen, I don't like the fact that half my job is making fundraising calls. I don't want to be doing that. Yeah, let's, let's get public financing. And it was there, and they all said it was going to be there, and it was in the state budget until it wasn't, 48 hours beforehand. And no one really had... We just couldn't do it this time. Just not the year for it. And the next year wasn't the year for it either. So why not? Well, again, if you're in the system, you're benefiting from the system. So if you are the governor and you call up an important businessman and go, Mr. Important Businessman, I need you to write me $10,000 for my campaign. And the, the, the businessman goes, oh, righto. He's a British businessman for some reason. Right, right, righto. Certainly, I'll do that. Because that's the governor, right? Yes, it's the governor, absolutely. I'm an important person. I want to keep that relationship open. I want to be able to get the governor on the phone when I need him. Yeah, $10,000. You're running for governor. You're Cynthia Nixon. You call up the same person. Well, well, you know, I love what you're doing, Cynthia. Sounds jolly good. Don't know why this guy is so British. Um, but not this time. Why not? Because she's not governor. She's not likely to be governor. Why would I buy influence except from people who have influence? So as much as politicians might agree ideologically that there's too much money in politics. And as much as even they might not like it personally, they might not like it, and many of them don't like having to make those fundraising calls, at the end of the day, they get their fundraising calls answered. Do they really want to pass a law that's going to mean that they're going to get more primary challenges and their primary challenges are going to be better funded? And it comes out of the state budget. So I think that's kind of the story of what happened there. So the moral of the story is, it's difficult, it's not impossible, like politicians can be genuinely ideological, but it's difficult to get someone to change a system whose, their job, their paycheck, depends on that system, right? That's answer one. Answer two is occasionally it will be in politicians' interests to change the system. So we had a vote on changing the... We had a referendum on changing the voting laws um, in Britain a while back to an alternate vote system. Now, this was in powerful people's interests. It was definitely in the Liberal Democrats' interest. And that was the price they asked for for joining a coalition with the Tories. It wasn't necessarily in the Tories' electoral interests, but... In order to form a government, they needed the Liberal Democrats, and that's the price they paid for their support. So that was the deal. So you did get a point there when it was, for complicated reasons, in the elite's interest to change those laws. And the public said no. 
And the public said no quite overwhelmingly. Which brings me to my second point, is if you ask people, everyone is a liberal in theory and a conservative in practice. Everyone loves the idea of change as a concept. When you put a specific change in front of people, they dry up. So, if you go to people and you say, should we, like, have new and innovative ways to vote using smartphones and stuff, people are like, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And then you're like, okay, well, here's a proposal. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. So, I think there's an inherent conservatism on both the part of the powerful and the population. And I think... If even very modest reforms can't get through, I'm profoundly sceptical that voting on your smartphone will ever happen. I think it's a fun idea, I think it's a fun thought experiment, but I don't think it's going to happen. Okay, final question. What idea or policy proposal coming from the political right, broadly understood, in America right now do I find most promising? I really like this question. Um, first of all, I don't disagree with conservatives on everything. I think, for instance, there's a moral case to be made for free trade. Now, I think that's often conflated with and used as a sort of justification for increasing corporate power, which I'm against. But in general, there's aspects of the market economy that I think are morally good and necessary. So I'm not left-wing completely down the line. In terms of specific ideas, I'm going to give you an answer to that. But I think it is worth noting how ideologically stale elites within the Republican Party have been for almost the past 30 years. The party's been trapped within a sort of neo-Reaganite, Ayn Randian deregulatory, tax cuts for the rich, agenda that has not been inspiring to its own voters. So there really is a disconnect in the US between conservative voters and conservative politicians. And it's into that gap that the monstrosity of Donald Trump inserted himself, though he has governed in a much more establishment type of way, it's worth noting. So there's really not a lot of interesting and innovative new ideas. Now, if you take something like the intellectual dark web, as they're calling themselves, there's, a, there's some interesting ideas there, but it, it's debatable how many of them are even really conservatives. So I'm going to give an idea which is definitely conservative, but I find to be quite interesting and worth pursuing. Here's my answer. Um, Demony voting. So if you haven't heard of this, it's sort of the right's return shot to the idea of lowering the voting age from 18 to 16, which is something liberals have proposed on the idea of getting people involved in politics earlier. So I got this from uh, Ross Douthat, who's a conservative who I quite like, and I read his column. And the idea is, why 16? Let's just give all children the vote, but their parents will exercise it for them. Now, the parents can exercise it in consultation with their child, but ultimately it's the parent who'll cast the vote. So this is interesting. And it's interesting to think about what this would do to our democracy. It's not clear that it would benefit one party over the other, but it would certainly change the alignment of power within the parties. So within the Republican Party, it would probably do something to break the stranglehold that these bloody over-70, Bill O'Reilly-watching, crotchety white people have had on the party. The Republican Party is controlled by the elderly. And that's something that we really need to talk about. I'm not saying the elderly shouldn't have political representation. Of course they should. But no one age demographic should have a stranglehold on a political party. On the Democratic side, it would probably do a lot more to um, enfranchise and increase the political power of first and second generation immigrant communities, which again is not obviously a bad thing. Now, on the more sort of theoretical moral side, I could think of a few arguments for this. For one, it might, if people have to justify their votes to their children, it might arguably make their voting less bigoted. It might make them think more clearly about their reasoning for voting a certain way. And it might make their votes more forward-facing. Right now, the fact that children don't vote 
means that you can shortchange stuff like early childhood education in a lot of ways. There's a lot of political debate about how we fund university degrees. How much debate is there on the quality of what we're giving people ages three through six? But actually, all the research in the world shows that that period is more important to someone's future success than whether they get a degree or not. But it's not part of our political debate. And maybe this sort of proposal would make people pay attention more to policies like that. Now, of course, there's any number of arguments you could give against it. I think I could well imagine someone like me who does not have children saying, well, hang on a minute. You, you know, you can say people are going to do this in consultation with their kids, but in reality, you've just given some people two votes or even three or four votes and I'm still stuck with one. How on earth is this universal suffrage? So there's a lot of objections to it. But I think it's a really interesting idea, and I think it's something that I would be open to having a discussion about. So that's my answer to that. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please do share them on your own social media, or tag friends who you think would like it. Or, if you're a member of a philosophy department, as I know many of our followers and subscribers are, then consider forwarding them to your students, or putting them on a faculty page, or something like that. They're meant to be public conversations, and the more people who listen, or in this case can watch, the better. So, if you're enjoying the show, the one thing I'm asking to support it is please do help us grow our audience and get these conversations out there. Apart from that, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.